Welcome to the first Into the Wilderness podcast, presented, edited, and recorded by myself, Byron Pace, and my brother Daryl. We aim to bring you honest discussions from those people shaping wildlife management and hunting around the world. This week, we have a local headkeeper and estate manager in the studio, joined on Skype by one of the country's youngest characters in the shooting industry. This podcast is brought to you by the Scottish Association of Countryside Sports, working tirelessly to protect their members and all country sports in the UK. Nathan and Bruce, thanks very much for, for joining us for this first uh, podcast that we're doing. Uh, we've got Nathan Little here from Laird's Sporting Directory, and we've got Bruce Cooper from Glen Prosen Estate. We're going to start off by uh, learning a little bit about the, the people that we're talking to today, uh, and then we're going to go on to talk about a couple of hot topics that have been debated in the last couple of weeks. So if we, we start off with you, Bruce, just tell me, what is it that you do at Glen Prosen Estate? I am the head gamekeeper and the estate manager. And what does that involve uh, as an estate manager and head keeper? Because that's uh, obviously a dual role. It is a dual role, and um, my roots are in gamekeeping. Um, and our estate was sold in 2011, and um, I was luckily kept on there by the new owner. And I've just progressed into the position of estate manager. Just uh, I've got a wide, uh, wide range of experience. There's been many projects going on on the estate, and uh, just through the through the last four years, I've just be, become involved with the the wider aspects of running the estate. Now, tell me, how did you get into it? If you cast your mind back to when you were you, when you were at school, was it something you always wanted to do? Do you come from a background of gamekeepers? I don't actually come from a background of gamekeepers. My father was actually a truck driver, and uh, my mother worked in a supermarket. But um, it goes back to my grandfather. He was um, gardener and overseer of early estates, which is in Angus. And he used to take me fishing, and it was his tales of uh, shooting and hunting and just general estate life that uh, that really planted the seed in, in, uh, in my head. And, uh, you know, from the from the age of 14, there was just no doubt in my mind at all that, uh, that I'd, I'd like to become a gamekeeper. So how, how did you go about it then? So you, as you said, your direct family, your mother and father, they weren't heavily involved in it. So how did you make that, that leap to, to, you know, to just do it, just to make it happen? Well, uh, it was a stroke of luck, really. Um, I'd applied for many jobs uh, through the newspapers and... Um, it just wasn't happening for me, and then just all of a sudden, uh, six weeks after I left school, there became a, a position for an underkeeper available on Canordy Estates, which was uh, less than a mile from my home. So I was interviewed, and uh, that's, where, that's where it all started. And since that day, you've always been involved uh, within the industry? Uh, no, actually. Um, after a year... I uh, I realised that uh, all my friends were working half the hours that I w was working. They um, they were making three times more money than the, than I was. So I decided that I was going to leave, and uh, I took a job in the forestry. Um, I would say within the first six weeks, I realised that there was more to life than the extra money, and uh, it actually took me a year and a half to get back um, into the, the keeping line. 
Um, I actually took a job as a rabbit trapper on Carriston Estates, which is also in Agnes, and, and that led um, into, uh, I think, 18 months, and then I, I, I was um, given another um, underkeeper's position. And how long did it take you to, to go from underkeeper to headkeeper? And in the, the position that you've got now, is, it's a massive uh, position of responsibility. Yeah, definitely. But, um, you know, as a gamekeeper, your, your life is your work. So I, um, around 1990, I think, worked on Lidnathi Estate, also in Angus. There was a decline in the grouse numbers um, in the mid-90s. Uh, saw me leave there and move up to Athol Estates. I had a season as a, a ghillie on uh, Athol Estates, as a ponyman ghillie. And then I moved to Glendie Estate. I was there for eight years. So that was a, a fantastic stepping stone for me. And uh, again, I was very lucky. I, I received a phone call from the, the Glen Frozen headkeeper um, at that time, Alec Both, and he said, Bruce, my knees are short. I have to retire. Um, would you like my job? And uh, I kind of liked the idea of that. And uh, I went there. We, we began to m make things happen. And then in 2010, the state went on the market. Really worrying time, obviously, because uh, we didn't know uh, who would buy the estate, what direction it would go. But um, new owners come along, um, invested very heavily in the estate. And uh, as I say, I've, I've kind of just slipped into the role of estate manager without actually looking for it. But, um, you know, I, I have a good knowledge of the ground. I've been involved in the building projects from day one. So um, it, it's just uh, it's just moulded into that position that I have now. We're going to touch on this a little bit more later, but it's not just grouse on your estate. You're in a, one of these positions where you've got a lot more to think about than just birds. Yes, I. We're a mixed sporting estate. Uh, we have a few roe deer, and um, we have um, a reasonable uh, population of red deer. So we take about 25 stags per annum. We shoot about 100 hinds per annum. And uh, we also have a uh, thousand uh, blackfish use, which we run as a commercial um, flock. And um, we have a beat on the River Tay um, down um, near uh, Murtley. Um So yeah, it's uh, it's a good mixed um, mixed job, and uh, there's there's always something going on. Great, um, Nathan, over to you. Now, you've got quite an interesting story because. Just tell everybody how old you are to start with. Uh, 23. Now, 23. Now, you are the, the owner of Laird's Sporting Directory, which seems quite a phenomenal thing. Now, I, I know, you know, having uh, followed you for the last couple of years, that you've not that long left university in fact, this year, if I'm not mistaken. May. May um, this I year. Mean, what, a, what a great time it was to leave university. I mean, I loved it there, don't get me wrong, but, you know, I've, I've stretched my wings now. Oh, brilliant. May, so... Is, Sorry, just uh, go back in time a little bit and just explain, um, well, we're going to gather very shortly your, your passion for, for grouse shooting in particular, but just go back to the very beginning of your story, if you like. H how did you get that fascination and how did you get from there through school, high school, university, and while you were there, set up the company that you have now? So, um, very, very simply, I... I don't, go, I don't come from a shooting background. I, my father 
used to do a little bit of rough shooting when he was introduced to it by a friend, but that's the that's the extent of um of that really. Um but he used to take me out clay pigeon shooting on the odd occasion and um eventually rough shooting. Um my first experience was actually when I was eight. So I did start quite young, but it wasn't very sort of very often. Um and I remember I was so I used to read a lot of buy a lot of the magazines, the shooting times and so on and so forth. Um, on, you know, off my own back. And, you know, I, I, I got hooked on it from there, really. I, my first ever driven day was when I was, was 13. And, um, I still have the sleepless nights the night before because I'm so excited for it. But, so I started relatively young and thankfully introduced by, by my dad. Um, but he no longer shoots and hasn't shot for quite some time. And since then, really, I, I took it over myself. I, I decided to go out, uh, get my own shotgun license, um, find find some permissions of my own to sort of start doing a little bit of rough shooting on first of all, um, and from there progressed on. And it was really, I mean, my shooting sort of, you know, really took took over when I was about sixteen. Um, I joined a little syndicate, which was fantastic fun. Um, really got, but but fully immersed myself as much as physically possible from anything from helping out on the on the feeding and um you know to the re- and, and releasing of, of the birds um and then i also helped out on one of the local estates for for a summer you know just because i enjoyed it so um, so so much uh, that was on a that was on a pheasant shoot in cheshire um and then consequently we had at six, 16 17 the syndicate that i was in folded and i enjoyed shooting with the team so much that i i i made it my mission to go out and find my own pheasant shoot um, not really understanding at that time how how difficult it would be um, and how many people considerably older than myself wanted to um, have their own shoots also. So I set out. Um, after one shoot day, I actually got, uh, got news that a shoot was folding. Um, so I approached the, 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 the present tenant of that shoot. As I say, it was about 17 at the time. Um, I approached a tenant of that shoot had a chat with him and he, he agreed to let me sort of take it on. But it was with that that I didn't realise that by him giving me, you know, allowing me to take it on, he then expected me to go and speak to all nine tenant farms um, that, that I was speaking with uh, because the shoot was a culmination of, of different farms at that time. Um, I spoke to a lot of them on the phone. At one point, they, some of them when I finally met up with the farms, uh, they did think I was a 40-year-old old bloke <laughs> uh, until they, until a 17-year-old well, lad turns up. Um, and at that point, I got on so well with all my uh, farms that they agreed to let me have the shooting on there. And I had that there for about two or three years um, whilst I was going through college and, and, and as such. And I, I do I do think that my studies suffered as a, as a consequence of that because I was going up, I used to cycle to feed my uh, pheasants every single day. That's dedication, that is. Um, I used to get the train and then cycle uh, from the train station. I think it was 3.3 miles. I can't, I, I worked it out exactly um, to the actual shoot. I'd go and do my rounds and feed my birds. Um, and then we'd host some days. And, you know, in all honesty, it was a beautiful, beautiful shoot that we, you know, I, I put together and, you know, had some good, really good days on there. Uh, it was it was hard graft and 
Yeah, that's why I, t- I take my hat off to these ke- to the keepers out there because it was it was bloody hard, but great fun. We had some uh, good fun days, um, but the sheer work of it, you know, the amount of work that took that came about, um, got a little bit too much, and I needed to focus on studying and to you know to ensure that I got into university. Um, so reluctantly, I had to give that piece of that that piece of ground up. Um, and it was sort of just before I let, just before I started university. So about three or so years, about three, just over three years ago, um, I um, I started up lads. I, I had to take a year out um, after college because I, I fell ill. That's why I'm sort of slightly later finishing university in terms of my age. Um, so in the sort of the year off, I started lads there, and and that's where I am today, really. But what um, what was it that encouraged you or made you take that step to start up Laird's I mean it's quite a it's quite a big it's quite a bold step it requires investment it requires time and you're studying at the same time so what is it that made you do that it, I was determined to to sort of fully immerse myself in all aspects of the the shooting industry whether that was uh, you know through the through the shoot which I no longer had at that time or um, through working with companies and what I found was as I was sort of progressing my um, my knowledge and interest in shooting, I was finding that um, there were a lot of products out there that I'd come across and, and then couldn't find them later on, um, you know, that I thought would, would, were really useful. So consequently, that's why I set up the Laird's directory as a sort of go-to place to find products and services and, and help new businesses, um, you know, showcase their, 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 their services and their products online um, you know, to help to help people, and I thought that was a great way of sort of starting off, you know, and pursuing my interest. Um, we started it off on on Facebook and social media, um, and it's just it's grown from there, really. Um, and uh, consequently, we've taken ex- exhibition stands, and we now host what I'm told is the is the infamous Laird's party. I think it's a quite a civilized affair, really, but. I, I have heard that rumor, uh, but unfortunately, I've never been about to attend, so I can't confirm that. Well, I like to, I, I, I'll, I'll maintain that it is a very civilized affair, but it goes down well. So um, it is. It, it was difficult to to juggle it with with uni, uni work, um, and as as I say, I the same same sort of thing with the, with the shoot. It sort of did take priority um, on some occasions, which you know isn't necessarily the best, but. It's what I, I adore doing. I, I I love shooting in any capacity, and I, I love all sorts of you know all other field sports as well. Um, and that's why I sort of pursued it and, and kept it on really. And, and just finally, uh, just to give people an idea of the scale of uh, Laird Sporting Directory, I mean, how many companies are you actually dealing with now? Well, our list is growing by the day. I mean, we're probably dealing with about. About about a thousand to twelve hundred have, have listed on the site, and it's and it, you know we're, we're the office is you know having phone calls on a daily basis, getting people listed on there, and people wanting to tell us about their product, which is fantastic for, for from our perspective. Um, with regards to the game fair, what we try to do is we try to give a platform, and and for the past three years it's worked very well to give a platform to new businesses that wouldn't have the opportunity or feel. Uh, a, a game fair is a particularly a large step for them that they don't feel comfortable taking a loan. 
So we like to think that we're a stepping stone for for these companies to help them get their get the, get their name out there, get their product out there, um, and hopefully give them that sort of confidence to to, to you know to pursue their sort of uh, product further and to to get greater exposure into the industry. Um, over the, particularly with the shows, we've done sort of thirty companies that we've worked very closely with and helped um, you know get a lot more attention at the game fairs. Um, and then plus the website and, and other companies that sign up with us. No, that, that's it's it always amazed me the the rise that it's had over the last couple of years. So no, it's really great, and uh, I think everybody congratulates you at what you've done so far. No, thank you very much. Now, so two maybe uh, slightly more prickly topics in terms of uh, discussion, not just uh, telling us about your own histories. If we we start with with grouse shooting. Um, because obviously we are now well, we're, we're just probably about a, almost a month after the, the grouse shooting season started and um, as with any season that, that arrives on the 12th there's always a lot of hot debate about grouse shooting and you know the ethics of shooting in general there's a lot of stuff that gets dragged up at that time of year and we've had a lot of discussion in the last couple of weeks amongst uh, you know keepers and uh, various different bodies, and generally speaking, you know, in the entire country and, and Scotland in particular. Maybe Bruce, if I can just ask you this question, and if you could just try your best to summarise this as concisely as possible: grouse shooting, in general, and particularly driven grouse shooting, is so much more than just the act of going out shooting. There's a lot more involved in it in terms of benefits to local communities both um, the economy and the wildlife can you just take those two subjects one being local communities and one being the wildlife and just explain why what you do really benefits those two things the the main thing is um, is the economics and um, it's the far-reaching um, behind the scenes uh, work that goes on to, to put on a driven grouse shoot um, just for an example, we we feed the guns and we feed the beaters. So you have suppliers of uh, meat um, to feed those people. Um, you have the lodge filled, so you have cleaners. Um, you have the laundry services. So it, it it's just really an endless list um, that stretches. It's all local companies. And um, the main thing for us is... Uh, in in these communities, there is there's not an awful lot goes on really. So it it's such a large part of their um, their economical turnover um, that uh, the grouse shooting does go on in the Angus Glens and uh, and and helps everybody out. And going on to the offspin of the wildlife, I mean we are uh, we're trapping stoats, weasels, taking foxes and crows for the sake of the grouse, so that we have a shootable surplus of birds each year. And the offspin of that, is especially in, in the, the highland areas, are the waders. Um, this year, the waders have not done particularly well because it was um, a cold, wet spring, and nor have the grouse done particularly well. And, and the estates will suffer financially for that. But going back 12 months, it was one of the best seasons on record. Um, grouse numbers were uh, as high as they've been in the last... 40 years, and uh, the way their numbers as well were phenomenal. In terms of the, the management 
um, aspects that enable you to manage the grouse? You, you've talked about trapping already and fox control. What do you actually do in terms of habitat management that is also a spin-off to the, uh, to the other species? One of the main things uh, in habitat management is the, um, the burning of the heather. The, uh, a pristine moor will have several different um, ages of heather on it. So you have the, the, the freshly burnt ground, um, which, uh, which causes a flush of, uh, of all sorts of uh, plants. And with those flushes come uh, flushes of insects. And then to, to the opposite end of the scale there, you have your, your long rank heather, where it gives the grouse and uh, other birds some shelter. And as well, the insect life in, in some of these denser areas uh, flourish as well. If we didn't do that, if, well, if you guys didn't do that, if you weren't burning these rotations of heather on the hill, what would the hillside look like and what would the consequences of that be? I think the the heather on on unmanaged moors, the, the heather grows uh, until it's very, very, very dense and very, very deep. Uh, and um, young young birds especially find it difficult to move around in this uh, this very, very deep heather. And then what happens is the heather just begins to die off. It turns a horrible grey colour, and uh, it it takes you know up to twenty years to uh, to recover again for it to be a, a flush. So we are actually managing the the heather so that, that there's a longevity to the to the moor rather than the than the cycles that uh, would would occur naturally. But the benefit to that in terms of in terms of species. If you didn't burn tomorrow, what would happen to the, the variety of species and the numbers? Well, I think th- they would come in peaks and troughs. There would be there would be a a, um, a period where it would be very good for uh, for for lots of dis- different species, and then eventually that would just wear away to there being um, very little wildlife at all, mm-hmm. because the condition of the ground would not suit the wildlife. Um, th- it, the wildlife would then become predated uh, without re- replenishing um, its own stock, as it were. And uh, I think that the moors would become uh, a bit of a desert, to be honest. Now, one one aspect that is always touched upon in the media um, in terms of grouse moor management for, in particular, driven grouse shooting is the question of raptors. Now, I live, I can see a load of grouse moors from, from the window here, and I know driving about, you know, I'm always surrounded, if you keep your eyes open, by a variety of raptors. You only have to drive 15 miles from here and you'll see ospreys and golden eagles. Why do you think there is a perception, maybe by the general public, that grouse moors and upland managed areas are void of raptors completely? Because that is, that is the general consensus and that is what we're fed in the media. <sighs> That it's a very strange one, that because you know I live in the heart of the Angus Glens and I see raptors every single day, and uh, I find it quite amusing um, that um, that people visit the glens. And uh, I've spoken to some of these people, and I said, "What wildlife have you seen today?" And they answer me, "Nothing at all." And <laughs> you know, you you just mentioned it there a, a couple of seconds ago. You know, you need to open your eyes. Um, wildlife does not come on demand like television. You know, if you if you walk out the glen in a bright orange jacket, speaking to your friend, making a bit of noise, nature disappears from you. 
But if you just happen to sit down with your back against the tree for half an hour, I can absolutely assure you that you will see some sort of raptor. You know, we see eagles daily, we see peregrines daily, we see buzzards daily. Um, and and how how people can can miss that when they visit these glens, I have no idea. Nathan, if I could just bring you in on on this yeah. this topic, you, you're in a slightly different situation where you're you're not involved in the, the daily management of you know an area of ground, but you're obviously part of it through the businesses that you deal with and the fact that you know you enjoy the fruits of the labor of, of these guys. What is your take take on that? Because obviously, you know, I know that you you keep very much up to speed with what what's going on in terms of uh, what's on social media and what's in the news and you know, we see it all year round, but particularly this time of year, chat about raptors on grass moles. What, what's your take on that? I mean, I, as you said, as you quite rightly say, I mean, I'm not involved directly, um, whereas, whereas Bruce is, but there is a lot. And I think uh, on social media, and I think that's a key point there, that social media these days has played such a significant part in both promoting uh, field sports. There are huge amounts of groups on, online that um you, you know that bring people together that share the share the passion for for different aspects of field sports grouse shooting pheasant shooting and you know and so on and so forth but it, it consequently i think it has uh played such a role as well in in um giving di- you know disinforming the public as to the perception of what grouse shooting actually is um i personally can can open my uh laptop and open my uh, facebook account almost on a daily basis and see uh, this very distinct sort of argument, uh, you know, lots of posts pro ground shooting, lots of posts uh, against. But there is um, an overwhelming amount of uh, publicity in the media, social media and the, and the press that that give such wrong information to the, the general public that, as you say, that um, grouse moors are void of, uh, of raptor species. Um, and I think the problem with that is. It's not the general public as a such that are anti-shooting. It's the information that they're given that makes them um, that doesn't make, necessarily make them anti-shooting, but it, it it contributes to that sort of growing um, uncertainty about the sport, and uh, you know a growing number of people believing information that they're given to from the, um, from media that is anti-shooting. Um, it's quite wrong. Um, I've been on numerous grass moors and uh, exactly as, as Bruce has said there, um, seen a, such an abundance of wildlife, including raptor species, um, that it's almost as if these people have never been on a grass moor. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, a, a really good example of that. I had to, I had to laugh. I think it was l- maybe last year. I was driving uh, over Kenamount uh, near where I live here. I was listening to Radio 4, and it was a, a BBC breakfast program. And there was uh, some woman on there, and I can't rightly remember exactly what organization she represented, but it doesn't matter. And she was on there basically saying that um, they're really concerned about the numbers of white hares in, you know, in our upland areas. And she really wanted everybody on the show, whenever they see a white hare, to phone into this particular number or log into this website and register the numbers they had seen, and the location. And I was laughing because, as you know, Nathan, and as you know, Bruce, anybody who has walked in any <laughs> managed any, moorland yeah. will see loads and loads of white hairs. I mean, you can't help but trip over them. And that I always thought that was a perfect, perfect example 
of how, without saying there are no hairs, but by asking that question, you're providing complete misinformation to the general public. Somebody listening to that who doesn't doesn't know, and it, you know, it's not necessarily their, their fault that they don't know, they may not really be connected with the countryside, and that might be their choice, and that's absolutely fine, but they then form this opinion that, oh, well, you know, what about the poor, you know, white hair up on the hills? And the insinuation, although it wasn't said, was that, you know, basically it, it is as a result of them being shot out for, for more than management. I don't think, I might be wrong, uh, I'm, I'm, but I'm sure Bruce will correct me here, I would be very surprised if you see a higher density of white hairs anywhere other than managed moorland. I certainly haven't, no, um, and, and that is for sure. And the thing with, um, I would say, most gamekeepers, and I would say probably all gamekeepers, is the love of wildlife. So there is no gamekeeper on this planet that is going to shoot the last of any species at all because that's what you live for. You you see wildlife every day. You live amongst the wildlife. You learn their habits and their, their tricks and their traits. So, uh, you know, why why you would want to make, shoot anything into extinction is just beyond me. I mean, I think it's also important to note as well that um, along the lines of what Bruce has said, gamekeepers love all wildlife and you know a lot of people will say well why do you shoot them then which is the, the obvious sort of rebuttal to that to that comment but you know i think a lot of people fail to recognize that yes uh pest, um you know pest species are managed they, they have they have to be managed um but it's also important to, to to acknowledge as well that every single species on that moor has a job to do even the fox uh, for, for you know for, for taking out sort of the, uh, you know weaker you know weaker species and, and clearing up and same for crows but it, it doesn't necessarily mean that as you say keepers hate hate other species uh, that you know that interfere with grouse or anything else it's completely you know nonsensical nonsensical to say that um, I mean but onto the topic of the bird of the raptor species again quite quite amusingly I was on a uh, a driven grouse day last year on a, a syndicate um, that um, works tirelessly to to help the um, the hen harrier species that they have that they have there, and it was so amazing to see those birds they, because they are simply an amazing bird to see, um, and to watch them uh, work work the ground in its in, is in itself I feel feel part of a day's shooting. To see that sort of uh, diversity of wildlife, um, you, you know, it, it's great. And in fact, it actually helped because it, it actually drove some birds to us, drove some grouse to us on one of the, one of the days. So it's, it's, it's amazing to see and to suggest that keepers want to persecute these animals is, is just wrong. Um, and it, do, it doesn't make sense to me from a, from a, shooter, a shooting man's perspective. Um, and, and of just, course, as far as the general public are concerned, yeah. you can't possibly say what you've just said because, uh, I mean, hen harriers as a single species is the one that's always brought up. So you should, as far as the general public are concerned, as a grouse shooter, want hen harriers dead. That is that is the the general public perception of grouse shooting, if you want to put it in, in a single species. I mean, I just heard it just two days ago in on the news. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the interesting things is is that again reverting back to the general public it is it isn't i i personally feel it, it isn't the general public that are anti shooting it's again the anti 
shooting community that play on the lack of knowledge of the general public who many of them don't you know have no interest in shooting or anything anything as such to rely on them as, as to sort of accumulate numbers and it's, it seems to be a numbers game at the moment rather than playing on hard facts um, and you know playing on the the lack of knowledge that the shoot that the general public have is, is simply not fair really if I could just uh, steer this in a slightly different direction for a moment um, now Sorry, that's that, the sound man coughing in the background. Um, yeah, if I can just steer this in a slightly different direction for a moment. Now, obviously, you, you enjoy um, hunting and shooting, uh, Nathan. Bruce, you do it as part of a job, but I assume you, you also enjoy you know, hunting for yourself. Would I be right in saying that? I, d- I do. It, as, a, as a gamekeeper, as a working gamekeeper, it's not often that you have the chance to hunt. But uh, when, when those opportunities come along, I do enjoy them. But uh, one thing that I will most definitely add is that it, when you shoot anything at all, it is a, a, a harvest of the surplus. And uh, that's very, very important uh, fact to, to consider here. So, I mean, when you say that, how, how do you work that out? Well, we we spend many days, uh, many hundreds of pounds each year um, counting the stock of grouse. Uh, in fact, three years ago, we spent um, 23 days um, counting the estate that, that I manage. And um, from that, we, we counted uh, 4,500 grouse. We took the decision there to uh, to harvest um, one third of that. So we, we shot just over 700 brace of grouse. So you know you you leave three thousand birds in the uh, in the countryside and uh, on the moor and um, and you hope that uh, if if uh, the weather's kind to you then you will have a similar harvest or or, or an increased harvest and um, you take it to this year two thousand and fifteen probably one of the worst springs that I can remember. And um, our harvest of grouse this year on the estate will be 300 brace. Now, the keepers still need to be paid. The vehicles still uh, need to run. And the infrastructure is exactly the same as it was last year when we had a bumper season. So, um, you know, it's not all about um, rich, wealthy businessmen. Um, and uh, and uh, ancestral landowners um, shooting grouse um, in their thousands. It uh, it's a very complex and uh, and closely managed um, project. So the, you know, it maybe isn't obvious to people outside shooting how carefully you go about your business, making sure that next year, once again, you can hunt. But it, it, as you said uh, when you were talking about um, species and, and gamekeepers not wanting to wipe all species out, you know, very obviously, but it might not be an obvious statement to maybe the outside world, outside of shooting, is that you need to make sure that the way that you're managing it isn't just good for this year, next year, 10 years' time. This is a 100-year, this is a 200-year, 300-year project. And I think people forget that or don't realize it. This isn't for the short-term gain. No, not at all. Not at all. I mean, we could go out this season and we could shoot 1,000, 2,000 brace of grouse. But as you say there, you you have to forecast um, and manage it so that um, 
you you have some sort of income next year. So that that's exactly what's happening in in Angus um, this year on on some estates um, that um, the grouse haven't done so well, and uh, and the the bags of, of birds shot is uh, is a long way off where it was last year, and that's basically just down to weather conditions, and um, it it's very strange really even in a small place like Angus that um, the grouse that hatched a week before others. Um, have perished, and uh, and the later grouse on the higher ground, just because of the time scale, um, have done quite well. It's a very 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 mixed up uh, season this year. Just to to conclude the, the the pure grouse discussion here, can you just explain what happens uh, for those people who don't know? Once the grouse have been shot on a grouse moor, you know they're they're all they're, they're all collected, and that they're you you you've you've got a, a group of people you know tirelessly making sure that. Everything that is shot is picked up, but from that point, where do these you know dead grouse go? Well, on on the estate that I work on, the grouse are picked uh, within thirty minutes of being shot. You would say they are taken down to a specially made um, game trailer uh, that uh, has moving air round about the birds all the time, and um, at lunchtime each day, the birds are then put into a chill that was uh, built at great expense and um, the birds hang in the chill at a controlled temperature until they're ready for the game dealer to collect. And where might they go? Uh, pass. Um, restaurants, I suppose, all over the world. Um, I I do believe that uh, there is a great rush on the 12th of August to get grouse to London so they can be on the plates uh, in the, in the top restaurants. And, uh, you know, that kind of thing is a great tradition and need, needs to carry on. Um, and it, it, it's great to be involved in the, in that whole aspect. Nathan, were you eating grouse on the 12th? Sorry? Were you, so, w- were you eating grouse on the 12th? I was. I, was, I wasn't shooting, sadly, but I still managed to get myself a brace of grouse on the 12th. Um, and, uh, yeah, they were absolutely delicious as always. Just to uh, just to change the subject slightly, uh, I want to talk about uh, hunting. But when I say hunting, I'm not talking about what maybe springs to mind uh, for a lot of people, which is on horseback hunting foxes. I just mean hunting in general. You know, the act of going out and hunting, taking something's life, harvesting something. You know, whether that be a deer or a bird, and taking it back and ultimately eating it. I mean, that is the end result of everything that we do. Uh, it is maybe a misconception that. You know, there are big pits dug with loads of game, uh, you know, being chucked into them at the end of the season, which it just doesn't it doesn't happen. Everything is consumed one way or the other. Um, if I can just go to, to you, Nathan, you do a lot of shooting throughout the year. You are essentially, if we were completely blunt about it, you are killing a lot. You are taking a lot of life. Now, from my point of view personally, it doesn't matter whether it's a bird whether it's a woodcock or whether it's you know a stag or a cape buffalo, it's all, it's all the same thing. You're still taking a life. How do you justify that? Well, I'll just say I'm not I'm not necessarily killing that much. I'm not the best shot, uh, <laughs> but uh, I mean, how how do I justify? That? I mean, the be- the best way for me to to, to sort of contextualise this is um, back when I was in secondary school, and I still remember this to this day. I used to get a lot of of my you know. Uh, fellow pupils say to me 
it's it's sick, it's cruel. What you know? Why do you you know? Why do you take pleasure out of killing something? And it isn't how I used to say it to them. Is it's not the pleasure out of out of taking a life. It's the whole atmosphere on, on the day. It's essentially, you know, some some people have often described it as sort of, you know. Uh, the caveman instinct sort of thing, but I, I think that's a little bit. It's very old, you know, very raw, in, you know, in a lot of lot of people. But when I go out shooting, I do it to to experience the countryside, to sometimes, or quite often, more often than not, um, spend it with friends who are of a like mind, and also to, along the same lines, as to harvest something that I enjoy enjoy eating. There's nothing more satisfying than that sort of kill it, cook it, eat it. Uh, concept for me um in that i'm I'm providing for my own my own table um everything that i that i have shot or killed is um it's wild it's fresh it's healthy to eat and i don't i don't see anything wrong with that and when you when you sit people down and you explain that to them and i'm talking here moving off the sort of driven shooting to an extent but you know the rough shooting walked up shooting and and maybe sort of the you know the smaller sort of driven driven days, um, and people tend to be far more accepting of that. Watch uh, what I found, and particularly the younger audience, because they haven't had this sort of at, at that age at secondary school we weren't like you know I was fortunate enough to be exposed to shooting and whatnot, but a lot of people hadn't. And once you sit down and explain it to them, they sort of they're far more. Uh, have far more rational about it. They're far more rational than, than certain adults that have sort of take this sort of, you know, no stance against it sort of thing. So for me, it's always been quite easy to ju- easy to justify. I don't think that w- what I'm doing is doing anything wrong. I'm actually doing something that's that's quite beneficial. And I, I, you know, it all boils down to the fact that the pheasant that I shoot is far healthier than that factory bred chicken that you buy from the shop for two pounds. That's that's been kept that's been cooped up and i think i i find it very difficult to to understand how people don't can't you know can't understand where we're coming from when we go out and shoot and shoot surely it's better that that animal has lived a free wild life and is and is shot um rather than being cooped up having experienced nothing more than a a tiny a tiny cooped up cage where it isn't able to you know it's um you know, to sort of demonstrate its natural instincts. Um, yeah, and I understand that we need, you know, we need to produce, um, you know, chickens and, and so on and so forth on a on a larger scale. But I think it's rather hypocritical that people go out there and criticise what we do as a as a com- as a community because we take great passion about the countryside and you know its management, uh, and then they go and buy a, a you know two pound chicken from from whichever supermarket so so what you know one of the points i was back at again on, on secondary school i actually did a demonstration on how to pluck um a pheasant that, that i'd shot that weekend um and it, it caused the, the teachers uh, must have loved you the the well the teachers yeah well we'll leave we'll leave that for another <laughs> conversation but i bought i brought in some pheasants in my school bag so yeah not my homework but it was it was an interesting experience, and then we we plucked the bird, you know, we butchered it, and we and we we cooked it in the in one of our cookery classes, and the surprising result, well, not surprising to us, but surprising result was that a lot of the kids really really enjoyed it, 
Um, and consequently, three or four of them asked me to take them shooting, which of course, of course, I, you know, I oblige. And that's what it's about. It's not about the taking taking pleasure in killing an animal, the actual pulling the trigger. For me, it's it's the whole affair. And, you know, people say, well, why can't you go out and experience that with clay pigeons? Well, firstly, clay pigeons don't taste very nice, <laughs> and secondly, um, you know, and, and secondly, it, it's not the same. And I think everybody that shoots will understand what I'm saying when I come to that, but it's, it's, it's now trying to explain that to the non-shooting community that going out and, and shooting a bird isn't bad at all, or shooting a deer or shooting a rabbit isn't bad at all, provided that the animal is, is treated with respect after it's shot. Um, you know, respect is given to the keepers that manage those animals and manage that land that it's come from, and justice is done to the, you know, to it, you know, i.e., it's eaten and it's put into a nice dish. Um, mm-hmm. You know, again, my cooking isn't very good. I'm not. Very, I'm not very good at many things, really, but I try my best with it, and that, that, and and that's why I'm I'm quite I'm more than comfortable with what what you do, what yeah. we do. And Bruce, what 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 do you say to people? I mean, I get this all the time, where oh, you know, oh, shame. You know, how can you kill that? Isn't it beautiful? My normal response to those people is, are you a vegetarian? If their answer is yes, then I'll sit down and try and have a proper debate. If their answer is no, of course not, I eat meat, I buy it from the supermarket. As far as I'm concerned, those people don't have any right to criticize you. They'll criticize me, criticize you. I mean, what's your take on it? What would you say to that person? I'm very, very lucky, actually, because the the environment that I live in, I um, I, I meet very little objection. Mm-hmm. But um, you're you're absolutely correct there, and and I often think about it at Christmas time, mm-hmm. when the the turkeys are um, are mass produced, um, you know, for the tables. You know, how can anyone who sits and enjoys a turkey dinner on Christmas day criticise me for taking the life of a deer? You know, that deer will have had no idea um, what killed it because you've taken a clean shot, you've killed the animal and you will sit and enjoy with your family that 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 beautiful animal that, that nature produced. Hmm. And uh, and the, the, the opposite thing of that is a turkey that's been reared in a shed, you know, with no life at all. And, um, you know, th- there is just no argument. If you're a vegetarian, that's your choice. But the the thing for me is that you don't wake up in the morning and go out and say, I can't wait to go out and kill something. What you're, you're doing is going out into the wild and experiencing nature. And the shooting of a deer in particular on, on a stalking day takes a second to pull that trigger and kill that animal. But you could spend eight or ten hours on the hill. So it's such a, a minute part of it um, is, is actually shooting something. It, it, it's a whole experience of being out there that uh, that draws people back. Yeah, I mean, from from my point of view, I take I, I probably take more people to shoot than I actually pull the trigger myself, in term, with a rifle certainly anyway. And like you've just said, the pulling of the trigger, anybody can actually do that. It's everything else that enables you to get there. And from you know, your point of view as a, as a professional stalker when you're taking out people, it's selecting that right animal as well. Because just the same as you've said before with grouse, it's not a case of shooting as many as you can 
with the deer, it's not the case of shooting any old deer. There's seasons, there's different age groups, there's different age classes. So for me personally, I get the greatest satisfaction out of actually taking other people out to experience what I've been lucky enough to experience. Quite often, some people for the first time, or people who haven't done it a lot, that gives me the greatest pleasure. But also knowing that once they've pulled that trigger and we've done a good job and it's been ethical and it's been clean and it's been quick, that that has been the correct animal in the correct location and that we can then take that and go and hang it up in a larder and then a few days later, you know, I turn that and fill my freezer with it. <laughs> so basically what you guys have said. Yeah, exactly that. When I go out, I mean, I eat a lot of venison. I think it's absolutely fantastic meat. And uh, uh, actually, when my uh, partner was in hospital before the birth of our daughter, the uh, the nurse said, my goodness, your iron levels are high. And the reason that our iron levels are so high is because venison has uh, such a high iron content. But um, yes, I mean, you're exactly right. When you go out to shoot an animal for the freezer, you, you, you pick a very healthy, fine specimen um, because you're going to enjoy that. When you take clients out to shoot stags, for instance, the, the stags that you're looking for are the stags that won't survive the winter after they've rut. So during the rut, a stag may not eat for three weeks. He will lose a quarter of his body condition. And at that time of year in late October, it's very difficult for an animal, especially in a wet year, to put the, its body weight back on to survive the winter. So my job as a professional, and it takes years and years of experience uh, to, to, to understand the, 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 what you're looking for, basically. But um, you, you, the stag that you want to shoot is the very old stag that is not going to survive the winter. So you're actually being kind to that animal because rather than it suffering and starving to death and dying, I would think would be a horrible death. You're actually one shot, a clean kill, and, and that's the, the animal's life taken. I mean, I personally would rather be shot than starve to death. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll second that motion. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I, I, I could literally do this chat for hours, but I, I'm conscious of time a little bit. How are we doing for time? What is it? Have you got a time check, anybody? 20 minutes. We've got 20 minutes to go. Yeah. Okay, good. Now, there's two, uh, well, certainly one other topic which uh, I'd like to discuss, which is more of a more of a global topic really but it does certainly apply um to this country and that is the the topic of trophy hunting now if we cast our mind back a few weeks and i've actually just returned from africa and no i wasn't hunting lions when i was there um but we've obviously seen the the, the fallout of of the now famous cecil the lion uh, a lion that people in zimbabwe had never even heard of before it was shot um but the fallout of that has been very serious and not only in terms of um, consequences for for hunting in Africa, but I would say globally. And I think it has maybe, in a way, been a kick that um, the hunting community needs to try and let people know all the good that is being done. Because, I mean, we've kind of touched on it already, the fact that there is a lot of great stuff being done within uh, you know, the shooting industry and the hunting community but it's maybe uh, not available in a way that is accessible to the general public. So they don't have that information available to them. I mean, the Cecil the Lion thing was a very good example of that. But if we just look at trophy hunting, now, I am not a trophy hunter. 
I am a I'm a meat hunter essentially. But that doesn't mean that I don't have the odd head on my wall. If you go next door here, I do have heads on my wall. I would be very surprised if any of them are classed as trophies, because to be perfectly honest, I've never measured a single one of them. And I personally couldn't care less. I have the having a, a, a trophy, if you want to call it, on my wall is the same as having a picture on my wall. Those animals that have been shot, they carry a story with them, and they were shot, to the best of my knowledge at that time, for the correct reasons, basically what Bruce has just talked about. Nathan, in, I mean, you can't really shoot a trophy grouse, but in terms of trophy hunting, how do you, how do you rationalize that to the general public? You know, you've got somebody who pays to go and shoot a trophy. How, how is that acceptable? And it's quite a difficult one to explain this, so I think uh, it'll be interesting to see where we end up. I mean, from my perspective, like yourself, I'm not a trophy hunter. I don't go out with the intention of putting something on, on, you know, on my wall. Um, though it doesn't, it doesn't mean that I don't agree with it. I've got friends who are trophy hunters, and they travel the world you know, hunting and shooting with the intention of trophies. And from my perspective, that's absolutely fine. I have no no issues with that at all, provided it's done ethically, it's done by the proper through the proper routes, and the money that it is that it generates is going through the proper channels to just you know to ex- as as we as a shooting as as we as the industry um, you know profess that it does go to does it go to improving um you know the habitat there does it go to improving the uh local communities there does it go to um improving the actual you know the nature of that animal whether that's a herd of animals or whether it's you know something else if it ticks those sort of boxes then it's you know from my perspective it's fine it's only when you get into that sort of murky area where you where, as in as in every industry, you get some unscrupulous people um, who will go out to 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 profiteer. Now, there's a difference, I think, between um, having a business in trophy hunting and um, profiteering off something that is, you know, is, is is not legitimate. And I think we can rationalise that to the the industry by making it clear exactly as we as we do with the uh, raptor persecution that does happen over here you know we can't deny that it does happen and by by making it crystal clear to the general public and the, you know the wider community that those people that are that are of that mindset that are unscrupulous and and, and do things for sheer profit are of no part to our industry at all they don't they don't have the same ethics they don't have the same morals and they don't have the same intentions as 99.9% recurring of our, of our of our community the benefit that as i say the benefit that i um, see from trophy hunting uh, you know it boils down to science and it has been proven that it, the money that is pumped into these communities if done properly has massive benefits to it um, and, and and on that note i i do i do feel that trophy hunting is a, is absolutely acceptable because let's not you know let's not forget if it's done properly the animal let's take take into account a, a cape buffalo for example uh, a, a person will go over and shoot that at that animal they'll pay a trophy fee um yes there'll be somebody that makes money off that but yes the the local community will do as well if if the industry if the 
operations run correctly and also the meat isn't wasted on it it goes to it goes to local um you know the local villages uh, i mean baron you know more about this than i do but it goes to the village yeah, in no, which you, that area was shot isn't it uh, yeah, in that which that animal was shot is that correct yeah no you you're you're absolutely correct there in fact what what happens with a, a lot of concessions um you know over in africa especially outside of south africa when you're going to the slightly more remote regions is those concessions which are split up by the government and uh, surveyed so they know how many species uh, there are and how many of each species they're going to give quotas for, for exactly the reasons that we've been discussing, uh, discussing already so that they have a long-term plan and so that you're not wiping them out, so that yeah. you're harvesting. And then uh, they, they normally have an, an agreement, uh, well, it's part of the agreement for, for renting that concession where um, normally more than 50% of all of the meat has to be given to the local communities. Now, most operators actually give more than that. Uh, but one interesting thing, I just read a, a really great study um, just a few days ago, and they were talking about the, the shutting down of hunting in, uh, in Zambia, when Zambia closed hunting for a year. I might ha have this wrong. I think it was between 2013 and 2014. It could have been the year before. And they did a study on the effects that that had had to local communities. And what a lot of people don't realize is that not only are those hunting concessions the primary source of protein to all of those remote areas, they're also the primary source of income. So what happened when hunting was shut down was now they had no meat and now they had no income to buy meat. So where do you end up when you're in a situation like that? So basically the government's decision to shut down hunting starved their own population. Yeah. I mean, uh, and, and that's why, from my perspective, I, I can justify it to people if it's done properly. I mean, the, the, the issue and the situation with Cecil the Lion, um, again, it, it's six of one, half a dozen of the other in certain circumstances certain circumstances because some people are suggesting that the you know they shouldn't have done it um and i mean i think if it boils down to the real facts i think for my for my little knowledge on this it was it it, it shouldn't have really been done um as it, as it was done i think it but i don't know the story too too well and i think the media has spun that um you know particularly badly and that's why it's affect, affected a lot of the decent um hunting outfitters out there um, and and cast quite a bad shadow over it. So, but done properly, I, I'm I'm quite happy and quite relaxed with, with with justifying trophy hunting to people that that, are, that will sometimes confront me about shooting and hunting in general. Uh, and, and Bruce, I mean, you you're a little bit more on on the forefront of this because I mean, undoubtedly there must be some people who come out to shoot stags who would be, I suppose, classed as trophy hunters. I mean, they're doing it for you're doing it for a greater purpose because it's part of a plan. You know, you have a management plan there and you personally are sticking to that. But the actual individual person who's pulling the trigger, you know, they're detached from that. So they may be, in certain circumstances, classed as trophy hunters. I mean, how, do you, how would you justify that, being on the coal face, as it were? If, if I was to take a, a call from a client or a potential client who, who called me up and said, Bruce, uh, I want to come to your estate and I want to shoot a 12-point or a Royal Stag, I would say, sorry, sir, but we don't trophy hunt here. That, uh, that is my line. I, I will then move on to that and say, it's not that we don't shoot Royals here, 
but it happens on a very rare occasion when we come across an old royal um, who, who needs to be culled. So I, going back um, to what we talked about a few minutes ago, for me, the, uh, the enjoyment of stalking is the day on the hill. And if you come to uh, my estate or the estate that I work on uh, for long enough, you know, there there is a chance at some point that you will um, you will shoot a royal trophy stag. Uh, but uh, I personally go out to shoot the, the ugliest heads that, uh, that I can find. But flipping that round completely and uh, talking about Africa, I've personally never been to Africa, but I totally agree with what, what you've discussed there is what people need to think about if it if it costs a certain amount of dollars for for someone to go out and say shoot a bull elephant, that is not pure profit for one individual person. That that amount of dollars will be spread over the whole community. The outfitter there will have to pay rent for the land. I presume he will employ local people for staff, and as you say, the meat will uh, will feed the community. So, in that aspect, if a certain wealthy gentleman wants to pay a lot of money to to have a a a, a photograph of himself with a big old bull elephant, then I'm fine with that because I understand the offspin of uh, of that uh, decision. I mean, the the one thing that I I always say to people when you know when when this comes up is that the individual person pulling the trigger, if their sole aim in life is to shoot a trophy animal so they can have it on their wall, that's their that's their own moral problem to deal with. You know, they can deal with that when they've got to deal with it. It's not actually my problem, and it's not the outfitter's problem, as long as. That person is shooting the correct animal, guided by somebody who is doing it as part of, of a greater management plan. Then, if you've got an issue with somebody, take it up with the issue with uh, with the person who only wants to have that head on their wall. You can't take it up with trophy hunting as as a way of management, because if you didn't have those so-called trophy hunters, you couldn't afford to manage many of these areas. It's maybe not quite so um, true in this country, and I, I'm, I admire Bruce's stance on it. Uh, you're being basically, you know, if you are a pure trophy hunter, there isn't necessarily a place for you out on the hill in this kind of management because you can't guarantee that you're going to shoot, you know, a trophy at what would be classed as a trophy animal. And I think that's fantastic. That is, that is the kind of view that everybody should have. But it doesn't mean that everybody will have that, and it doesn't mean you should stop these people hunting. I don't think they. I think if they want to, if they want to shoot for that reason, that's their personal for their own personal reasons. That's fine, and I might have an objection with that person. I might think they're the most horrible individual in the world. Just because they're a hunter doesn't mean that I agree with them. And in fact, I would say that if that is their only goal is to have trophies, they are not a hunter. Because uh, this is part. This is a discussion uh, for another time when we've got more time. But. Hunting and being a hunter encompasses so much more than pulling a trigger and killing something. Most definitely. Yeah, no, I'd agree. And uh, maybe on that note, that is a, a perfect place to finish. But thank you so much for your time, uh, both Bruce and, and Nathan, who's joined us from... What part of the country are you in right now, Nathan? I'm, I'm in Manchester at the You're moment. down in Manchester. Thank you very so much I, for joining I, us I, all I, the way down there. Right in the heart of field sports community. <laughs> No, that's brilliant. Thanks very much for your time, chats. I think there's been some uh, great discussion today, and I hope to speak to you again both soon. Super. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. 
This podcast was brought to you by the Scottish Association of Countryside Sports in conjunction with Pace Productions UK. Music by the amazing Alex Hume. Find Pace Brothers Into the Wilderness on Facebook and Twitter.